You're listening to CRST, the podcast from Bryn Mawr Communications. Hello, and welcome to another episode of CRST, the podcast. I'm your host, Eric Rosenberg. I'm a uh, cataract, uh, cornea, and complex anterior segment surgeon out of Long Island, New York, and site MD, also uh, assistant professor of ophthalmology at New York Medical College. On this episode, we're exploring the transformative potential of digital technology in ophthalmology as featured in the June cover focus of cataract and refractive surgery today, uh, for which I was honored to serve as uh, the guest medical editor. As co-founder of the Digital Ophthalmic Society, I've witnessed firsthand the power of AI, machine learning, and teleophthalmology as tools that enhance uh, workflow. Uh, improve patient access, and elevate the standard of care. Joining me for this discussion is one of the contributors to the June cover focus, uh, Dr. and Professor Oliver Findel. You know, thank you for being here. And before we get started, maybe you can help by introducing yourself, Professor Findel. Oh, well, thank you very much, Eric. Um, Oliver Findel, I'm, I'm, um, I'm in Vienna, Austria. Um, uh, I, I'm chairing a department here um, in Hanusch Hospital. Um, I, we have a research group as well called Vienna Institute of Research in Ocular Surgery. Um, and um, I also currently serve as the president of the European Society of Cataract and Refractive Surgeons, the ESCRS. Well, it's fantastic to have you here today and uh, thank you for joining. Um, we are all uh, immensely looking forward to joining you in uh, Vienna, Austria for ESCRS this year. Um, it's uh, poised to be an awesome meeting and, you know, I've been getting a lot of the mailings here and uh, just kind of jumping into it. We're seeing a lot of digital, um, a lot of digital medicine going into it. And it seems as though um, as president of ESCRS, uh, you've wholeheartedly embraced this digital ophthalmology, um, you know, e existence and, and why it's going to be so important. So um, maybe you can tell us, you know, why this was such an important attribute to including in ESCRS this year. And, um, you know, it, it seems to be much more prominent now than we've seen in the past. Well, absolutely. I mean, you know, as things, as you know, things have changed uh, significantly over the last few years. Um, um, and, um, you know, being also part of the Digital Ophthalmics Society, and which you invited me to be part of, um, you know, also helped. I think um, we actually, we formed a digital committee uh, last year um, because we thought that was in good, in, would be in place uh, and, and necessary for the next few years. And actually, Bruce Allen from Morefields Eye Hospital is, is chairing that, and he's very enthusiastic. And, and we've also now had a digital uh, ophthalmic grant, uh, which, which we um, uh, gave out this year, actually, to, to, to studies which are done collaboratively on keratoconus, actually, and, and a, using AI um, to try to um, you know, better detect uh, keratoconus. Um, and, and, and that is going to be an ongoing program over the next few years, this, this, this grant program. Um, and so, obviously, we wanted to have digital to be really part of our program at the Congress as well. And what we did is now we have a digital track. So we have a research symposium on digital uh, medicine on Saturday. And then we have essentially four sessions um, concerned with digital ophthalmology um, on, on Monday, the whole Monday. And we call it the Digital Monday, actually, because of that reason. Um, and, and that's starting with, um, you know, looking at digital health in different continents, so the different um, societies 
also the American Society of Cataract Refractive Surgeons, the AS, surgery, the ASCRS, as well as the Asian Pacific, and us. We do this um, uh, together in a symposium, and then we have um, quite a bit on on the digital operating room, and then also on robotics um, because that's also digital in a way, right? Um, so you know, how, how where are we going with robotics in the operating theater? And then the afternoon is all, again a, sort of similar to your digital. Um, of Thamic Society Day, but just obviously much more compact. Another session in the afternoon. So I think if if you know if you're interested in digital ophthalmology, that that day will start at you know essentially pretty much at eight thirty and, and lead until four o'clock in the afternoon, and you're pretty much always digital during the day. So and we're trying not to be repetitive. So I think it's going to be quite quite interesting. Yeah. So I, I think why are we doing this? Well, you know, it, there's no question that. that is going to be part of our future um, and it's probably a very important part of our future and there's a lot of um, opportunities there a lot of um, interesting fascinating things happening and trying to just get people also to to be sort of sorted to understand you know what different parts are you know you have ai you have robotics you have you know obviously big data and all these topics are sort of swirling around and they're sort of you know it's a certain way they're also interconnected and 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 i think that's what we're trying to better understand, you know, what is the, what is the current standing of all these? Absolutely. I, I love that with Bruce and, and Nina Her, uh, Hirschnall, right, and, and the team at Moorfields that, you know, in talking to them, um, I've always been very excited hearing their take um, and their existence um, or, or how they see the integration of uh, some of these tools uh, as we proceed with ophthalmology and um, really stepping up to bat to kind of be the foundation player um, to help us um, create, uh, you know, a, a universal type system um, that, you know, we can, we can start, you know, um, modeling, uh, you know, the digital health and digital ophthalmology after. So it, it's been exciting seeing them move in this space and what it is that they're doing. Um, and that kind of leads me to the next point where it's, it's very interesting to see all these societies going across the APTOS, the ESCRS, the ASCRS, um, really embracing these, these digital platforms because, it used to be that they were placed um, in different subcategories, right? You'd have like um, an AI talk in glaucoma about how it was being used to, you know, study the nerve um, or telehealth and telemedicine in a, in a cataract um, discussion or better yet, a, a diabetic retinopathy. Um, the one consistency here is numbers, right? Um, people and biology, that all changes as we go across the globe. And we, we really recognize that early on, um, 50, 100 years ago, uh, with, the, with the varying um, pathologies that we see in the incidences um, for those pathologies. But um, numbers, they don't change. Um, and we can really start to work together again uh, with these digital platforms uh, across all of ophthalmology and all of medicine, uh, not just sub, sub, sub categorized like we've been doing um, in, in kind of carving out these niches. We, we need to start working together, I think, in order to tease out some of these important um, pathologies that exist uh, across the platform and how things play into each other. And, you know, I guess that's a good prelude to, you know, talking about the power of big data in ophthalmology and, you know, where we can, where we can see, uh, leveraging some of these data sets, um, 
and and how we're going to incorporate that going forward. Um, and you know, I think you're working on a very interesting project uh, as uh, has AAO uh, with the Iris Registry, and maybe you can elaborate a little bit more on those. Well, I mean, you know, I think, I mean, we, we we're not doing we're not doing an Iris Registry in, in Europe at the moment, and, and I think you know the, the problem is um, manifold. You know, one of one is it, it's a very you know resource intensive thing. You know, to do something like as huge as the Iris Registry, which is done in the US. Number two, we have different languages, different cultures. You know, that makes it a lot, lot more difficult. Um, also, we don't have the same legislature, right, in, in, in all these countries. So that means, you know, I mean, there is sort of one common, you know, GDPR for, you know, for, for data protection. That, that, that's Europe-wide. That's fine. And that's not really the issue. That's not the problem. But, but also that, you know, in, in, I understand in the U.S., uh, you know, Iris Registry worked because people really have to sort of, you know, have to have an EMR, Right. And here they can also have to have, well, they don't have to have an EMR, they can. And there's still people who write on paper here. I mean, doctors, colleague, colleagues of ours, you know, who, and, and hospitals, which are still on paper because they know that EMRs are also painful in a certain way. <laughs> you get them installed, they're expensive, they cost you a lot of trouble. You know, so as you know, there's a lot of issues. And so, so doing the Irish registry, you know, that's something which is probably much easier to do in one large country than to do it in multi-countries, number one. Number two, the problem, I think, you know, we also do a registry, the Eurequa registry. I think it's out there since nearly 20 years. And that is, the, you know, European quality and assessment for, for cataract surgery and, and, and uh, was, was originally, you know, designed by, by Mats Lundström and it came from Sweden, from the Swedish registry and, was sort of, and, and with EU funding, the ESCRS created um, Eurequo. And Eurequo has, I think, more than 3 million cataract surgeries on board. Um, and there are some countries like Sweden or the Netherlands who play nearly all their surgeries uh, up into that registry. And there are other countries which are sort of participating only to a small extent or some, you know, this one clinic, that university, whatever. Um, and, you know, that has given us a lot of benchmark data for, you know, PCR, you know, posterior capsule rupture, um, you know, for risk factors and, 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 and for outcomes, of course. Um, but, but the problem with that is it's, it's not, it doesn't have very detailed information. So it really has, you know, obviously the preoperative, intraoperative, some postoperative, that's it, you know, so there's visual acuity, any complications, stuff like that, but obviously not more than that. So no real biometry data, for example, or no, um, you know, topography, tomography data, no scans, you know, nothing of that kind. So, the, and, and so the, really the question is, you know, what, what do you want? You know, you can, if, if, if you want to develop, for example, AI, or you, do, you want to develop some algorithms, whatever it may be, um, you can either have a lot of data like Iris, you know, just looks all across the country, but maybe not to such a detail. There's not really necessarily images there. There's not necessarily any raw data there, meaning, you know, topography, tomography data, for example, or biometry data with all the details. Or do you want to have a smaller data set, which can still be a large data set, but just you know much more compact, where you say that that's really well um, structured, very well defined data, like a data warehouse, and then you can have that data set, and then you can start doing all kinds of you know hypothesis testing or whatever you may want to do, you know develop calculation formulae for IOL power, whatever it may be, and. Um, and so I think we're not quite sure where we want to be. You know, I think for the one, for, for some things, you need the big data approach, the sort of registry approach. And for others, you may actually need a well-selected, well-done, well-made data set, which is really, um, you know, 
um, um, has high quality, has high um, you know granularity, and and then that can really help you. And I think that's what we're sort of aiming for at the moment is to go for these smaller, still large, but smaller data sets compared to big data, and then and then try to have those um, and you know as as well formed as possible. And I think you know that that's going to be, uh, to be honest, you know, all this AI stuff. You know, I mean, I'm not an AI specialist. You know, I've never done AI. Let me say programming. We don't really, well, you know, using AI algorithms. But really, my understanding is the most important really is the data which is behind it. You know, um, and 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 then I think that's what we're lacking in many many cases. That's, for example, where medical retina is a lot better than us because they have all these OCTs already, right? And they're pretty much all done with, you know, two, three different types of machines. And then they can just go ahead and, and, and they have, you know, obviously these vast, you know, all these injection patients come in and out and come and come and come. And so those huge data sets and also data sets they have from the big, you know, from, from the trials which are used for, 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 the, for, the, for the new drugs. And also there, you know, the reading centers, they have huge data sets of, of, of images and I think that's obviously for Retina, that's great because what they, I think, will be able to do quite soon is to say, you know, see things which we can't see and say, you know, not, not only do, not, don't, don't I see that in that OCT, but the kind of speci- you know, specifics you have in that OCT, even though we don't know what it is, actually is a good or bad prognostic factor. And that is a patient who's really going to be good for that kind of treatment or for another kind of treatment, or you can, you know, change intervals quickly. I think all these things will be coming in medical retina pretty soon. And I think that's where we're a little behind in anterior segment surgery uh, at the moment um, because uh, we we just don't have um, such, such um, let me say, um, you know, coherent data sets. And that's a great point. And that brings me to an, another, um, another point of, of this discussion. I get a lot of questions as to why now, right? We've had digital technologies in ophthalmology for quite some time. Um, you know, why is that existing now? And I, I think you touch on it um, very clearly. And, um, you know, we're really on a cusp of um, of having to understand what questions we need to ask and how we need to ask them. And with what you're bringing up, uh, physicians need to learn the nomenclature behind what we're studying and how we're leveraging machine learning and, and artificial intelligence and what you were just touching on is essentially adaptive AI um, versus generative AI. So adaptive is the more traditional one that we're used to, where we're having these large data sets and we're leveraging the, the machine learning um, and the artificial intelligent algorithms to be able to process uh, what it is that we have um, in, in our databases. And if we want to break that down further, we can start talking about federated data um, which is uh, really new on the scene where you can query certain databases and ask them different questions depending on what the database is in order to get a similar result. So you don't necessarily need to have consistency going across the board. You can pull in data sets um, that exist in different metadata categories across the board and then be able to, to pull them in. Now, the question is, you know, how clean are those sets? That's always been the question. So garbage rubbish in, rubbish out. Yeah, exactly. Old story, right? Rubbish in, rubbish out. Um, for sure. How clean are those sets? Uh, and then are we asking, you know, the right questions uh, with those uh, federated uh, algos? Um, so we need to be able to appreciate that. Now, let's go back a little bit and, and talk about generative AI, which is also new on the scene. 
Um, and it focuses on using unsupervised um, and semi-supervised data sets um, in order to produce new content. Um, however, you know, however we want to be able to, um, you know, produce that content. So uh, the problem with the generative AI uh, is that we can also see drift mechanics where um, it, it starts to, to drift off of, you know, the original question, so to speak. Um, and it, it formulates its own um, answers and responses based on, um, you know, the, the previous sets and previous sets because it's unsupervised. Um, when, when you start having a little bit more semi-supervised, the uh, generative uh, algorithms, then, then yes, uh, right, we'll, we'll, we'll see a little bit more heter uh, homogeneity with the answers that we're receiving um, versus those drift mechanics. But these things didn't exist five years ago, right? Or it, it, at least not in medicine, for sure. Um, and I, I think that drives home the importance of why clinicians um, and, and any provider, for that matter, really needs to start understanding um, the, the mechanics behind what it is we're looking to integrate into ophthalmology. Like you were saying, I think it's important for clinicians and doctors to understand um, the AI algos that underpin, uh, you know, all the technology that we're, we're looking to unveil because, you know, we can only do what we know and, um, you know, blind faith in anything has never proven um, to, to be a strong prognostic indicator of success. So, you know, we, we need to, and we have been obviously um, formulating and, and, and developing programs at our, at our national meetings and international meetings so that we can serve, um, you know, the, the, the broad uh, group in terms of helping them to understand. So, you know, understanding is one thing. Um, you know, I'm curious how you see um, and ex and uh, how, how you see some of these technologies underpinning um, what it is that we do on our day to day, and how it's going to help to improve patient care through these uh, digital technologies. And you know, I'm, I think most of us don't really need to know. I mean, it's good to know the nomenclature and to understand the systems in principle. But I think most of us will not be using AI or not be sort of you know using it in, in a form that we will be generating an AI algorithm. I think that's. We may, you know, some may want to do that. That's fine. But I think at the end of the day, what we will have, we, we will have products from companies, of course, because, you know, we need something which we can, uh, yeah, we can, you know, we need for documentation. We need medical devices at the end of the day, right? Software, also medical devices. And I think that's, you know, and, and we'll see some of, of probably the big players are going to be the ones who will be, um, you know, on the forefront there at some point, and and these AI algorithms will have learned from large data sets, and they will still be learning um, as 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 things develop. Things develop, uh, and I think that's where we're going to be heading. So we'll probably have you know this app and then that special app and that module that you know which is inside of our whatever. Um, you know, for example, OCT machine and what it, what it may be, and we'll have that obviously probably for IOL calculation. But I think, um, you know, I think what, what's also important is, is, is and, and I think from a certain perspective is what, what maybe interests me even more than having these small apps here and there, which are going to be very helpful, I believe, is to have something which, um, which sort of really puts your EMR together. You know, you have your EMR, you do all these patients uh, and, and, and you enter the data either in, in a structured form or sometimes even just, you know, with free text. And, and there's even you know, some pretty good algorithms now which even understand free text 
and obviously do searches for free text um, uh, throughout your whole EMR where you've, you know, have your thousands of patients which you're taking care of. And I think we'll need a, uh, it'll, it'll be very useful for us to do audits to understand our quality of, of service to understand, um, you know, our outcomes. Um, and I think patient-reported outcomes is something we're doing much too little of. Uh, for example, for cataract surgery, you know, we have problems out there. There are short questionnaires. Do we use on a regular basis with every patient? Most of us don't. So I think I think we'll, we'll see that coming much more into play. And then to really understand, you know, which patients are unhappy and which are happy and for good reasons or for not for good reasons and to really understand much more of this, uh, of this complete, let me say, a little more holistic, even though still ophthalmic. I'm not talking about you know, completely holistic, but trying to really better understand and, and, and also beforehand seeing that this patient may be a patient who's at risk of not being happy because you've had that kind of pattern already in the past in several patients and it's popping up again. And I think that's, these are things which would be very helpful for us also in our daily routine and not just, you know, diabetic screening in, 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 in fundus photographs. You know, that's also great, especially for, for internal medicine specialists or GPs. Uh, but, but really, and, and of, of course, for OCT and, and stuff like that, it's going to help us. But I think that's also going to be of, of quite a bit of interest. And then, of course, last but not least, also surgery. And that's obviously what I, you know, and many of us are most interested in. And the question is, you know, whether you're just sort of doing your cataract surgery, you're just sort of, and then suddenly the, the algorithm says, stop. Because there's some kind of pattern which you're doing, either it's because you're tired or it's because the eye looks the way it looks at that point in time where he says, oops, this is a potential issue you're going to have right now. Um, there's a high risk, you know, there's a risk of I don't know, 90% that you're going to run into some kind of problem now because you've had that already in the last five years, five times in different cases, but which looked similar. I think so. So this, this will, I think, may be something quite fascinating, I would think. Um, something which is sort of watching you, your autopilot, uh, the autopilot who tells you, you know, you're sort of going a little off uh, the normal beat, offbeat track now, and you just have to watch out. Um, so, so I think, yeah, I think we'll see some, some things coming like that. I, th- I think, and, and, and I think that's something which is quite, quite, could come quite soon, sooner than we, we think. You touch on a great point too, and it's one of my favorites in digital medicine and, and AI-backed patient care therapeutics and diagnostics. Um, you know, it's it's not about asking the questions we know; it's about asking the questions we don't know. Um, and it's um, unique ability to be able um, to digest and interpret data. Um, at speeds previously not recorded um, through multimodal mechanisms to be able to provide us um, with a a different vantage point than we're used to having, um, which would only further um, enhance, you know, the patient care therapeutics and diagnostics. So um, I love that idea, right? Going into cataract surgery and it processing data in real time um, understanding fluid mechanics, uh, which we appreciate, right? When, before you sit down with a FACO needle, you need to read certain books, right? To understand the machines uh, that you're using. And yes, in principle, it's there. Um, but the means in which for us to in real time appreciate, uh, variances is, is not to the same standard that we can use, um, AI and, and certain therapeutics and certain, um, certain, certain algorithms. 
Um, but let me transition just for a second and, and welcome uh, Grayson Armstrong, who we're privileged to have here as well today. Um, I'll let you introduce yourself um, and then ask you the same question uh, where we're talking about uh, improving patient care through uh, digitization um, and more specifically in your case, uh, the concepts of teleophthalmology, uh, what benefits, challenges, and future prospects you'll see um, with those platforms. Well, thanks for having me. This is awesome. And uh, I'm Grayson Armstrong. I'm an eye surgeon over at Mass Eye and Ear, Harvard Med in Boston, Massachusetts. I practice as a complex cataract surgeon and medical retina specialist and have a very strong interest in digital health and telemedicine. So thanks for the easy toss-up question for me. Uh, telemedicine has a few obvious benefits, in my opinion, um, telemedicine being defined as kind of caring for a patient through some digital mechanism from afar. And whether that's a video like a Zoom screen, like we've all been living on over the past couple of years during the pandemic, or whether that's something more robust with analytics and imaging incorporated, we're trying to use technology to broaden the gap and make it so that you don't have to have a doctor and a patient sitting in the same room at the same time. There is a future where we would be able to evaluate a patient as good or better than we could right now uh, in our slit lamps and with our indirect ophthalmoscopes um, using digital mechanisms. But unfortunately for a lot of ophthalmology, that's not the case today. So if you're able to implement telemedicine in a meaningful way, you can raise the ship in terms of education and diagnostics across all countries and across the world everyone would get the same level of care because everyone will be able to share the same diagnostic platforms, the same AI algorithms that Oliver's, you know, so well-versed in and working on. And um, everyone would benefit from the same technological advances. And you could have specialists from one country consult another and say, Hey, we just need your help on this. Can you pop in real quick and give us your advice? And in addition, it would help education because not all countries have the same educational paradigms as we do here in the United States and in Europe. And I think that some countries would really benefit from that. Um, patients would be able to kind of have ease of access in their homes and in their communities instead of driving sometimes hundreds of miles in the Midwest of the United States to try to see a patient uh, or sorry, a physician. But there are some real challenges in setting this up. You know, right now, if you're setting up telemedicine on a phone call or a video call, you may not get a really high quality exam. You might be able to see a sty. And you might see a preceptal cellulitis, but you're really not going to be able to find that retinal tear on a Zoom call. And you're not going to be able to diagnose, um, you know, AMD bleeds from, from the comfort of your home. So we need some help with that. There are some people thinking about this. There are individuals who have proposed a novel model of care called hybrid telemedicine or hybrid ophthalmology. It's partly asynchronous meaning that you can get the pictures and photos of an eye as you would in your clinic anytime you want. The patient can come in and get their OCT, visual field, their topography, and whatever field you want, and then they go home. Subsequently, they hop on a call with me or you or anyone, and then you can review those images in real time with the patient, make a diagnosis just like you would in the office, and send them off. Eventually, if we had anterior segment imaging, that might help too, because right now it seems to be the laggard and what we use clinically in a meaningful way. Everyone uses an OCT and retina, but how many cornea providers take anterior segment imaging on a day-to-day -day basis? It's limiting. So, so there are some improvements that could be made. But overall, if you can do that model, then everyone can get really high quality care. If you can incorporate um, machine learning algorithms and AI, then the screening can be done for you. 
You can also use telemedicine uh, and digital health to try to collect the HPI and pass medical, pass surgical ahead of time and offload a lot of that work for, for you as well. So there's a lot of benefits um, from this. And looking forward, I think that as the tools evolve, as the cares, uh, models of care evolve, it's really up to us as clinicians to uh, make sure it's safe and effective and it's the same quality care. It's really up to us as physicians to make sure that we're giving it to the right patients because not every patient's going to be a good candidate. If it's not every patient, for example, is really good enough with their phone or their computer to set up a Zoom call even. You know, some, some patients just can't do that right now. So we, we can be thoughtful about it, but ultimately there are some benefits to society that will come in, with time. Grayson, absolutely. I'm, I'm, I'm completely with you, and especially if somebody has to you know, travel far. But I'm just wondering, you know, if it, let's say somebody has to travel 25 minutes to get to you, and they could do it from at home, but then wouldn't you really also, don't these patients also need some personal contact? You know, I'm, I'm, especially with, you know, I'm talking about elderly patients, um, you know, and, and, and if, if they're alone on, at home and then they're alone again. And actually, we know that when they sit in the waiting room, they actually, they some of them like to wait. Why? Because they talk to other patients and then they talk to you and they talk to the nurse and they talk to, you know, your front desk. Um, and of course, you know, I mean, you know, we've all had that patients who, you know, you give them a diagnosis, which, or they, they've already been given the diagnosis beforehand, which is not a good one. And then you can also actually hold the hand. And even if you just do that for 10 or 20 seconds or whatever long it is, you know, that has some impact for the patient and may actually do them well, may even do them better than the next injection they get. So I really, I, I really wonder, we also, uh, we still have to be aware that, you know, it's, it's not only about looking at OCTs and, you know, sort of essentially looking at the cataract grade and doing the surgery, but there's a lot more to it. And we in ophthalmology, we are quite detached from the patients because we have that slit lamp in between us, usually, most of the time, right? Um, and so we're not as close as others are because we don't have to touch them, usually. Um, but I think, you know, I think just, in, just because we're ophthalmologists and we're sort of used to being a little detached already, we just have to watch out that we don't detach even more. And I know, for example, at Moorfields, they do that. You know, they do these clinics, which, you know, patients go to, to, to tech-driven um, clinics for glaucoma, for, for medical retina. They get all the imaging, and then everything is, is, is read two or three days later by a consultant who's sitting in front of two screens. And he and obviously writes, you know, everything's good. I mean, I think it's technically sound, but I'm just wondering whether this is the way, you know, patients actually really want it. I'm, I'm, I'm wondering. That's a great point, you know, and there's, there's going to exist a problem in the U.S. where there's a mismatch between the number of providers and the number of people who need care as well. Um, so the question is how to bridge that gap best. And I think you both touched on those points uh, very eloquently um, because we're at a crossroads between um, implementing more, I don't want to say uneducated providers, but less well-trained and less well-qualified providers, um, maybe to augment our extended reach, uh, that would be able to do some of the things that, that you mentioned, Professor Findle. And then um, at the same time, uh, allowing um, you know somebody uh, in a satellite campus to be able to study and analyze it, like Dr. Armstrong's saying, um, you know, there's going to probably be a hybrid of those two approaches too. And I, I think, you know, medicine, um, in my own personal opinion, has always started and ended uh, with the patient-physician relationship, uh, independent of anything else. And I think to be a good physician, um, it, it behooves you to remember uh, those, those points. But the question um, maybe should be, um, and this one's kind of going looking towards that future, what implications do AI 
um, and big data have for ophthalmology? How, how do we leverage it to um, enhance and not replace? So I, I can't remember if it was Ted Lang or Lannick, uh, Yannick Leiterman who said that uh, he doesn't like the, the nomenclature artificial intelligence. He much prefers augmented intelligence, um, something that would be able to enhance, not replace the things that we do do on the day-to-day basis. Um, you know, I'm, I'm curious how you see those future implications uh, of AI um, being incorporated in, into our day-to-day lives. Yeah, I mean, the machine learning aspect of this is uh, interesting because it is a, uh, I like the term augmented intelligence as well. In fact, the American Medical Association uses that kind of uh, as its term instead of artificial intelligence. They've adopted that in a meaningful way. It is meant to help support us and make better decisions. And there are patterns within data that humans just can't find. There are pictures of fundi that can show things that I can't see as a medical retina specialist. I can tell you someone's age and gender and can tell you what their you know, hemoglobin A1C is, their creatinine. The things that people can find in photos or OCTs is pretty remarkable. Dr. Armstrong, I mean, are you not a good clinician? You don't know somebody's HB, HbA1c from a, from from a fundus fund. Unfortunately, fund? I'm not trained enough. I need to go back and do more training. But you know, it's funny because you can get a lot of systemic information from these photos, and so you could imagine a future where instead of going to the lab, you just get a photo. They can tell you a lot of these metrics. That would be really cool, wouldn't it? And then ophthalmology is a gatekeeper of the rest of the body, and we can really get some useful systemic metrics. And we're just kind of at the forefront of it all. We'll see if that ever comes to pass. You know, it's a dream and a hope. Um, And back to what you were saying earlier, I hope and pray that this doesn't replace the physician-patient relationship. I hope that there are patients that if they need it, they can find us. But there are those patients that really don't have transportation. They're stuck at home, whether that's from sociodemographic factors. They need to take care of their elderly family member or their kid. And I'd like them to get the same access to care that the patient sitting in my waiting room has. And ultimately, everyone's going to need something unique. And I think that really does speak to the patient-physician relationship. We can just broaden our reach with new modalities to the right patient at the right time. And it shouldn't be blanket for everybody. I think, you know, if, let's say you, you really want to be efficient. And we probably have to become more efficient because the baby boomers are getting uh, into the age where they're going to have disease. And, and we're not getting more physicians. In Europe, at least, there's the, a the, the tendency to having less physicians. Uh, also because of baby boom, boomers um, going into retirement. And so, so what, what I expect is that we're not going to have these Zoom calls with these patients. I think that's not going to happen very often because, you know, as you said, they don't, they don't know how to work Zoom or then they don't get in at the, at the right time or you don't, you know, so you have these short time slots. Um, in, and and it's, it, it's going to be, I think, it's something which you may do here and there for special patients, but it's not going to happen very often. So I think what is going to want to happen is they're going to get an email or they're going to get a letter which says, that's your diagnosis. And you should see um, us immediately, or you should, um, you know, see us in six months, or you should see us in a year's time. And it's just going to be quite, um, quite offline, I think. Um, and 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 that communication is going to be a very strange communication, I believe. Um, theoretically, you could play this through the GP, for example. That would be an option in some countries where you know the patients have a strong adherence to the GP, and you play it through the GP. That's okay, maybe. Um, you could play through some other, you know, healthcare professionals um, like optometrists, maybe to a certain extent. In some countries, that also seems to work quite well. But I think still, you know, for, for our role, it's 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 a tough one. You know, if it's just about screening, I'm absolutely with you. 
Um, but if it's really about patients who actually have a disease and who otherwise see their ophthalmologist with a certain, you know, regular on a regular basis for good reasons, um, I'm a little worried about that kind of, you know, doing that on on on, on a large scale with, you know, for for these patients um, in, quite intensively. Just wonder where, where where they end up. Well, given that you both have been uh, in the metaverse, and I probably need to ask this question, right? Uh, do you see VR, AR, mixed reality um, coming into play both, um, you know, at the clinical level and at the professional level? I mean, um, we've started to see a little bit of it uh, at the professional level, but do you think we'll wind up seeing um, medical storefronts or, or mechanisms or means in which um, to be able to interact with those patients that, uh, as Grayson alludes to, may not have that access to care. And maybe they do, right? And this would act as that first in-between, um, between, you know, your office and the discussion with the patient. Would, would there be a play there that you would say? I'm probably too old for that already. <laughs> I don't think there's such a thing as that. And you've been in the metaverse, so you definitely can't play that card. <laughs> I don't know. You know, I think I think well. I think we really have to, probably have to wait for another few years to really see whether that's going to you know be something for for mainstream uh, for many people. Um, and and I, I probably in, and and the more technical it gets, the more gadgety it gets. You know, then it also people sort of lose it. So I think it has to be pretty simple and pretty straightforward. Um, maybe, yeah. I I wouldn't rule it out. You know, the first cell phones were so complex and bulky that only the richest and the most, you know, well-versed patients or people in the world could have them. And now we all hold something with more computing power than we can imagine in our pockets. I think early on, AR and VR was a novelty for, for gaming, uh, for imaging, and for a few things. And I think that with Apple coming out and talking about immersive computing and really beyond just the gaming space and really beyond some of these early use cases, I think that there is a potential that this could be used at scale at a point where people feel like they're engaging with one another in a new way. And I, I'd like to see that happen because it would give that personal touch to some of the computing that we're doing right now. Um, I don't know that it's going to be tomorrow. And I think that there's a bell curve of humanity on every device uptake. And I think that we're currently on the leading edge of that and it's going to slowly trickle down to the middle and beyond. So it's exciting to, to, to watch and I'm glad that people like you, Eric, are helping shape what that looks like. And I think that it will all benefit. Uh, I, and I think that there's currently a small percentage of humans that would take advantage of that in a meaningful way. I can say personally, having been in the metaverse and creating memories with people having stood virtually side by side, it feels like we were together, even though I was sitting in a bedroom in my pajamas. And it, it was pretty wild to, to look back at that and like, oh yeah, I remember that. Like, even though the moon was in the background, like, I feel like I got to hang out with Eric Rosenberg. That was pretty fun. So it was- uh, <laughs> I'm sorry in advance that you had to hang out with me. That's, 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 <laughs> that's definitely the penalty. <laughs> but I, I think there could be a future there. Well, great. Um, you know, first and foremost, I appreciate both your times uh, with doing this podcast here today. Um, it, it means a, a lot to me and I know um, to everybody listening. Um, it's it's definitely a, a novel um, a, a novel topic and discussion. It, it's not going to end here by any stretch of the imagination. And it's really exciting to see these societies embrace um, what the technologies are and what they're going to be um, in to be as progressive as they've been. Um, I really commend uh, 
ESCRS and ASCRS and the APTOS um, for really being progressive leaders. Um, and it shows throughout history. Um, every step along the way, they've always been progressive with uh, whatever the technology was at the time in ophthalmology to be able to embrace it and be able to deliver it um, to our patients in a meaningful way. So as we conclude this discussion, you know, it's clear that the future of our field, um, to me, uh, in my personal opinion, lies in leveraging AI and machine learning technologies to ensure a more accurate, um, efficient, and customized patient care, uh, given our discussion here. You know, the promise of AI and big data is undeniable, uh, as is the importance of careful and responsible implementation. So uh, on that note, I'm uh, Dr. Eric Rosenberg. Thank you for joining us on CRST, the podcast. Don't forget to read more about these topics in our June issue of CRST. Um, and it's available on crstoday.com. Thank you again. For more shows like the one you just listened to, check out the podcast channel on itube.net.